Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer, co-host, engineer, call screener, and we're looking to add other other duties to his, uh, his job description. Okay. Chris, Chris Morales in the house. I'm ready. I'm ready. 646-564-9909 is our number. 646-564-9909. 09 is the number if you want to call in and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our um, our show website, which is blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. You can also listen on the call in line, which we just gave you, if that's your only means to do so. Make it happen. Make it happen. All right, let's get right in with our uh, our recap. Okay. Happy or not, we'll just call it the recap. The this recap week. this week. All right, let's do it. Um. Well, for starters, we know that uh, the last two shows we were we did on the uh, therapeutic community. The first one, the macro. Second one, the micro. That's right. Um, and of course, as the week goes on. I remember even more micro things, but we'll tackle those at another time because every day I think of a micro thing. The micro never ends. In, in the TC that uh, that we didn't cover. And I'm not sure if there will ever be a time when I don't think of something or you don't think of something in the, TC, the micro aspect of the TC. Yep. Um, a little sports. So the NBA Finals are underway. Yes, indeed. Um, I think at the end of our last show, my, I made my going-away pick, Cleveland in seven. That's right. And um, so, and what I didn't mention is that uh, I do have the authority to uh, change my pick. <laughs> okay. Uh, as of now, I am not changing. I'm still sticking with Cleveland in seven. And what was your... 
Warriors in six. You sure you didn't say Warriors in five? I would go with Warriors in five on the back of Kyrie Dunn, but I think Warriors in six. Warriors in five or six. I'm confident enough to call it five right now. If well, you want to put me on the spot, yeah, that's one. Put, make your call. Don't don't. The Warriors will be hoisting the trophy in Oracle Game Five on Sunday in front of their loyal fans. Quick NBA trivia: What is the name of the NBA championship trophy? I knew you were going to ask me that. I knew you were going to ask me that, and that is one. That eludes me. Is it? Let me let me get a hint here. Is it named after a commissioner, a former commissioner of the NBA? Yes, and I'm also going to put another trivia on top of it. It is named after a former commissioner. I thought so. And I'm going to add on to that. Do you know what the original Name NBA the champion trophy was? trophy was named after the first commissioner of the NBA? And then they changed it to the another commission. That's where you're going to get me. I thought I can recall it being named after a commissioner. Um, <laughs> see, Adam Silver is too new for it to already be called the Adam Silver Trophy. And I've not been alive enough and to... Not, and it's not named after the recent commissioner, David, David Stern. Stern. So it's the guy before David Stern. And I can't go back any uh-huh. any further than David Stern in my that's youthful what, life. That's what happens when people move away from books <laughs> and go move towards the Internet. Uh, Larry O'Brien. The Larry O'Brien Trophy. Okay, yes, that does ring a bell. And before that, I believe it was the Maurice Podlo, Podloff Trophy. <clears throat> okay. And by the end of his stellar career moving forward, it'll be referred to as the Stephen Curry Trophy. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah, so I, that's it. Warriors in five. So, I believe my wife asked me, since when are you interested in horse racing this weekend? And I said, I'm only pay attention to it when it when it comes to someone time. Someone be winning the triple. When someone has an opportunity to win the triple crown. Because yeah. growing up in New York and in the late 70s, when we actually were blessed with having three triple crowns happen during the 70s um, with Secretariat, Seattle Slough, and, of course, Affirmed. And as a New Yorker, Affirmed stands out to us because of the uh, duel she had and he had in all three races with Ali Dar in the Derby, Ali Dar in the Preakness, and then the wired, the, you know, nose-on-nose race of Valley Dar to uh, edge him out in the Belmont Stakes. And so that's why that one was so special. Okay. Um, This recent one with American Farrell reminded me of Secretariat, where he just blew away the field. It was power. Owned everybody. Yeah. Um, So nice story. Nice story. Well, and you you had mentioned... um, uh, and I, we're probably both misremembering his name, but War Memorial or something like that. Yeah. Excuse me. And I believe Seabiscuit was based on a true story, the movie, mm-hmm. because the horse they used for that race, his name was War Memorial mm-hmm. or something like that. And he was much bigger mm-hmm. than Seabiscuit was. And the the thought at the time was this big, powerful horse is not going to lose to this little thing that should be giving pony rides to kids at the, the carnival. Yeah, the, the county fair. 
Um, so reminded me of what you were talking about in the real race when War Memorial, if that is his name, was the much bigger, more imposing horse. Um, Same thing with Ali Dar and Affirmed. Mm-hmm. Ali Dar was huge, yeah, that's uh, what you powerful horse, um, and in in the end, it was you know the riders who follow that stuff were saying that it's possible that uh, the trainers or whoever decides how the race should, along with the jockey, how they're going to structure strategically the race, right, didn't really make good decisions, right, but. In the end, it came down to the horse versus horse. Mm-hmm. And for whatever it was, you know, you know, in every sport, you just have winners. Yeah. And a firm just proved to be just a winner because she held him off. He, I keep saying she. I don't know why I keep saying she, but he just held him off and beat him by a nose in the Belmont Stakes. Yeah. And um, got the Triple Crown. He just had that in his blood, that, just, that winner's that, DNA. That winner's and here we are, 37 years. Now, Fern passed away in 2001. Um, and then Ali Dar, I think in the mid-2000s, okay. uh, passed away. But 37 years, they've waited yeah. for a Triple Crown winner. That's right. Similarly, in baseball, until uh, Miguel Cabrera, Cabrera won That's the right. Triple Crown. And for those of you who don't know, in baseball, the Triple Crown is when you – win the batting title, the home run title, and the RBI, RBI. title. So that we're not uh, turning it into a sports show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, slide on into our topic. Now, the way we normally do this is we we normally have our topic for the next show chosen around Thursday, Friday-ish. Right. Okay. And, and then I load it up usually Sunday, Sunday, Monday-ish, Monday the latest. And we had a topic and which was actually kind of forced upon us as a result of questions, repeated questions, and then uh, listener uh, requests. That's right. Uh, can we cover this topic? And we had already covered this topic. This may have been in December. A little, was, yeah, yeah, a little while ago. It was one of our earlier shows. Um but probably not in the way that the questions started coming towards us and, and, the, and the way the issues were being raised. So we were right. going to cover it again, but in a different way. But then something else came to the fore yeah. uh, via social media, uh, which had to do with uh, Daytop New York. That's right. And um, its demise. And who or what was at fault or who caused it? Um and so when I, when I saw this, I said, you know what? We did a show. We started out our uh, Rochon Recovery OCG radio show with, first, the historical aspect of Daytop. We did a three-part series, three parts, part one, part right. two, part three, starting with David Deitch on the, on the founding and the, the early days. Um, we did, and we had Charlie Devlin on. That's or, right. you know, the middle part, the golden era, and, you know, into the 2000s. And then we closed out with one of my peers um, for, for the end, part three. But we never really focused on, honed on, you know, zoned in on how did daytime fall? Why did it fall? What, what happened? And so on and so forth. And it appears, I don't think I'm wrong, it appears that there are a lot of feelings, thoughts, and opinions out there um, about it. Now, from what I've read, there's a lot of positive 
but there is some negative. And my message out there to those that have negative feelings is let's get it out. You know, let's talk about it, but let's do it based on fact. So I said, well, from the perspective of Daytop, California, okay, uh, from where we sat, 3,600 miles away, um, why don't we do the true Hollywood story from what we know, right? Just fact-based, what we know, um, and then see what happens. And it was a great idea. I think it will be a great idea. Uh, I am in the privileged seat where I get to ask whatever questions uh, I choose to ask, put the host in the hot seat, so to speak, although there's a good amount of disconnect there between California and New York, but he has the knowledge that uh, inquiring minds would like to tap into, and hence the the well, topic uh, for the day. Let's rock and roll. Shoot. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm now gonna get. I'm now gonna get into my interviewer's voice. Uh, no, okay. So yeah, we've got. Um, I, I wrote down some questions, and I want to try and make this as much of a conversation as possible. But being that I do have an affiliation with Daytop because that's where I came through, and mm-hmm. I've been a part of the organization of Daytop longer than we have been OCG. There are definitely some main points I wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. We'll start with if we could maybe give myself as well as the audience the specific day that Daytop closed, not said they were going to close or whatever the case may be, and I think there's a, mer- a potential merger out there, but the specific day or date that Daytop closed. Do we have that? Captain's Log Supplemental. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, okay, ballpark. There is no um, specific day for me to say. I can't answer that. Okay. Um, Okay. From I can only tell you what we what Charlie told us. Sure. Which was 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 that there there. I believe January one of this year was the official date where the merger between Samaritan Village and Daytop was supposed to take. And, and, and I think it was less a merger, more a taking over. Sure, okay. And that the name was going to be Samaritan Daytop. He was going to be he was going to continue to be a part of that in, the, in a board, some board capacity, um, but that's the way it was going to happen. So if, if we were going to use a day, if it did occur, and I have no confirmation that it did, let's say that it did, because that's what was put out there. Yeah. I would say the January. official date would have been January December thirty first, two thousand fourteen. Okay. All right. Excellent. So now we'll get to the meat and potatoes. Outside versus inside. What caused this closure? Was it means beyond their control? I.e political things, things to do with the government and funding, things that were beyond something that they could control in-house, or did we ultimately shut down because there was a mess coming from within those walls, business-wise? Well, we're gonna, let's go way back first. Take us back. Because we have to get a big picture of you. Take us back. Okay. When I when I was promoted to a position of leadership, that was in 96. 
Okay. Okay. So I started to interact with leadership um, in Daytop, New York, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Okay. Um, my direct supervisors were Charlie Devlin, the former chief operating officer. Um, we call him Yash. His full name was Yasser Hiyazi. Okay. Okay. Um, and so that's who I sent my reports to, corresponded via uh, mail. It wasn't really email at right. the time, um, phone, et cetera. And that's who I took my marching orders from in terms of the operational aspect of Daytop California. I was director of operations, and it was kind of a three-headed leadership monster, very poor model, but that's the way it was. The director of the adult facility, the director of the adolescent facility, and then me, the director of operations for Daytop California. Sure. We all reported to back to New York. Back to New York. And and so I pretty much on the operational side, since Yash was chief operating officer, reported pretty much to Yash. Okay. Charlie and I did have some interaction. But one of my pet peeves um, just once you get into a leadership role and you start to get a, a larger picture of how the organization exists, runs, operates, etc., yep. was that, and remember, we're specifically talking about Daytop New York. Right. Okay, because at the time it was Daytop New York, New Daytop Jersey. New Jersey, Daytop Texas, Daytop California, and a few other Daytops. You know, we had a few other stepchildren. Okay. They're known out there, sure, and some that still exist are lesser known. Okay, the primary one that still exists is as Daytop is Daytop New Jersey. Okay, okay. I always felt, and this is just me personally, okay, that Daytop New York operated or functioned operated as a instead of operating as a nonprofit, they kind of operated in certain aspects like a Fortune 500 company. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. So, what do I mean by that? Well, to me, as a nonprofit, you cut, you operate lean, mean, efficient. You use money to the to, to the most efficient, wisest penny, you know, means of, 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 as possible. Of course, you know, every penny's watched, etc. That's not to say that every penny wasn't watched. I'm just to saying maybe one less van. One less car, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, the executive management team isn't getting a company Amex black card. Well, that, that wasn't happening, but I'm just saying as time moves on and dollars get scarcer, which they were in the 90s, you know, there were, belts were being tightened, government belts were being tightened, and when government tightens its belts, nonprofits that, that exist subsidy have to react and tighten its belt. Right. And this is not to say that Daytop didn't. They did. But, to, you know, I mean, I remember there was a time Joe Hannon wanted to ask me, <laughs> said, we need to transplant, meaning me, transplant you back there to do the cost cutting that needs to happen, yeah. which really wasn't happening. Now, it happened, but it really didn't happen the way it should have happened. Okay. Okay. And in a fashion that it should have happened. That's only my own personal opinion from a distance. Sure. Okay. Now, they wanted to, New York wanted to expand Daytop California, okay. which is was not unheard of. The big thing was always expansion, 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 okay? Yeah. But 
one of the things they did not understand was the different climate that existed in California and the different means and methodologies that you had to go through to in order to expand. So on numerous visits that the Monsignor made, the purpose of the visit was expansion-related. And I've related one story that we did when we did the Monsignor show about we were going to look at a site in Vacaville, California, right. and we met him at the airport and drove up, and that's when we found out. I found out that he smoked a pipe. Right, right, right. He was right. in the back seat smoking his pipe. <laughs> um, we were going to look at a property yeah. for expansion. It was in one, when Joe Henn came out mm-hmm. um, to be the vice president, he replaced uh, the late Edison Summer, who passed away, mm-hmm. who was in Daytop, Texas. Daytop, Texas eventually closed. Okay. Okay. And uh, Joe Henn came out to help lead us and get us kind of organized and put in a proper leadership structure. That's when I was promoted um, to the position of executive director. And we were still, New York was still looking expansion for California. They they saw that, and this is, again, the old model, that that survival, ultimate survival, depends on, you know, expanding and getting larger. Right, okay. Well, as we came to find out, that's not the California model, okay, because it's not set up the way it is in New York. But. Up until 2006, there were still sincere efforts to make that happen. Sure. Including somehow Joe hooking up with some very wealthy guy who owned some property in Redding, California, that used to be a religious boarding school, that the guy was willing to uh, lease to us at a very sweetheart-type deal. I remember that. Because he was you know, very uh, into our mission. Okay. Okay. And so we made two trips up there. The first trip was me, Joe, um, to look at it. Yeah. Took a lot of tons of pictures we took. I remember and that. And the result of that visit up there to Reading, and by the way, we took a puddle puddle jumper turbo prop. <laughs> now, I'm six foot four, by the way, people. So I had to literally bend in half to get on this plane. Okay. <laughs> and. The result of that was, you know, from 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 the giving feedback to New York in terms of how that went was, hey, let's get a budget together, a a startup budget, a annual budget, and let's see what it will take to get get make that rolling, make, make this happening. Because the vision was this can be structured similarly similarly to how we have it in New York, where this place up in Reading, the people who are on the Eastern Seaboard don't know, Reading is. Like upstate New York, okay, up in the mountains, very rural, rural type thing, and then where we're located down in you know in the Bay Area, thirty miles south of uh, San Francisco is, kind of, even though technically I have my hands up in air quotes, we're suburban to, to San Francisco. We're still in kind of an urban setting, and yeah, right, industrial, drop, drop dead in the middle of Silicon Valley. Right. Okay. But we were saying where we are now, we can use as the, the reentry and entry, and then up there would be treatment. Treatment. Right. And so I was given the green light to start working on plans and budgets and so on, and also to go back up there and start meeting with the leadership, town leadership. Okay. Okay. Which in early April of 2006, I did do. Me and my, my colleague, Mr. Peck, took another puddle jump trip. 
up there. Man. We met with the sheriff, the chief probation officer, the uh, president of the board of supervisors, which is similar to a mayor, uh, again, to my eastern seaboard friends, um, et cetera. We were warmly received. We went back up to the property. And by the way, it was snowing. Down in the city where we were meeting with people, it was hot. Up where the property was, it was almost like six inches of snow. Right. Okay. Took took more pictures. Um, did another walkthrough, and so on and so forth. So we're we're putting all of this stuff together, gathering all this information, getting everybody on board, getting the town on board, town leadership on board. As a matter of fact, when we were driving back down and we stopped at a store, they asked us, "Hey, you know, what, you guys plan to open, you know, do something with that property up there? That school?" And said, "Yeah, we're looking at, you know, doing A, B, and C." They were like, "Good, you know, because it's been empty a long time, and you know, blah blah blah." We said, "Fine." So we're thinking that, hey, this thing is a go. Uh, we're, you know, we're putting all this stuff together, sending it back east so they can look over all the numbers and so on and so forth. And I get a phone call from Joe Hennon. I can tell by the tone of his voice before we even start talking that something's up. Mm. And he says, Orville, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. So before I say what that is, let's go back to 2000. The property that the adolescent facility sits on in Redwood City, California, was purchased by the Daytop Foundation in 1990 for $600,000. They refinanced the property in 2000-ish, 99-2000-ish. Okay. Well, let's say between 99 and 2001. And pulled out $1.1 Oh, yes. Okay. Stashed it in a bank in Yonkers, New York. (laughs) All right. Okay. The purpose of that money was for the expansion of Daytop California. Okay. Okay. So, in going up to Reading and doing all this, we knew in our mind that we had money for startup and to get us off the ground up there and get us rolling before funding starts rolling in. Right. We knew we had this money. And we knew that the reason we knew that because we were. We knew that that's what the purpose of the money was for. That's why I was sitting there for four or five years. Okay. Well, when Joe calls me up and he says, Orville, I got some bad news. I said, what? He says, you know that $1.1 million that was sitting in that bank in Yonkers, New York? I said, yeah. He says, it's gone. I said, what do you mean it's gone? <laughs> Where'd it go? He said, New York had to use it to cover payroll. And it's not going to come back. And I said, what the f mom? Okay. Yeah. By the way, Joe's a priest. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to uh, so put some context okay. to the story. And I said, what do you mean that it's gone? How can they just be? How can they just take it and use it? So he said, well, they're struggling back there, and they weren't going to make payroll, so they took the one point one million. And obviously, New York's a big organization. Huge, yeah. Um, and they needed the whole amount to cover their payroll. And he said, and in his words, I do not think, and I doubt very seriously, it's going to be replaced. The trips up to Reading and all of that stuff about expansion instantly vaporized. Gone. Okay, vaporized. Now, we were pissed on two fronts. No, let's say three fronts. Can, um, I, can I interject a quick question? Sure. The story that I had heard 
and this may be in addition to what you were just saying, was that the reason, and what was told to me, was the primary reason that those plans fell through was the gentleman who who owned the property who was going to lease it to us kind of pulled back and said he wanted something a little that more was, religious. That was long or, after the fact. Okay. That was long after the fact. Okay. Um, because, and I'll get to that, but it was then when Joe made that call to me and said New York used that money, that was when April of 2000, early April 2006, that's when I knew that there was something, there was problems back in New York. Okay. Okay. The question is, where did those problems come from? Yeah. Well, I found out that prior to that, a couple of years, consecutive years, okay, they had some audit issues with Medicaid. Okay. Okay. Well, it's called audit exceptions, where they had to pay back a lot of money, mm. let's say in the millions. How many millions? I don't know. I know it was in the millions. Okay. Okay. Which is significant. Okay. Similar to, uh, you know, like we're, we're a medic, we get Medicaid money, and sometimes we get an audit exception and we have to pay back $1,400 because they disallowed something. Mm-hmm. Okay. No big deal. Okay. But millions, significant. Big deal. Okay. And so when you start having to pay money back that you've already expended, and you're not making any any allocation in your budget for disallowances. Right. Okay. Where's that money coming from? You know what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, whatever else is going on in terms of government belt tightening and, and shortfalls and what have you, you add that on top of it, it's a snowball rolling. Of course. Okay. Now, remember, I have to reemphasize, this is Daytop California's perspective right. based on what we know. Right. Okay. So we knew that there had been a couple of years of significant audit exceptions where Daytop New York had significant money that had to be repaid. Okay. And of course, the question arise: Well, what the hell was causing these audit exceptions? Right. Who was misinterpreting the rules? How they applied the second time around, and or the third time around. So these are the questions that were being thrown around amongst the the data of California leadership, um, because obviously when we heard that, you know, before years, a couple of years before, you know, we said, oh wow, that's you know it's unfortunate, you know, that that happened, and hopefully they'll recover from that. But we never made any connections to us. We're thirty six hundred miles away. We were making our we have our own funds, you know, we're making our own you know, money, paying our own bills, et cetera. We didn't, we didn't understand at that time the thread link, okay, or the view of what Daytop California was to Daytop New York, mm-hmm. the powers okay. that be. Yeah. Okay? And when I say the powers that be, I don't mean all. I'm just saying the powers that be. Sure. Okay? Well... The view turned out to be that one of two th- two things, Daytop, California, whenever New York, this was our opinion, started to struggle, we became an anchor around their legs, mm-hmm. or through the refinancing of the property and using the money, we became a 
revenue source. <laughs> right. Okay. So things came to a halt in eight, late April 2006 when Joe Hannon calls me again. Okay. And says the executive council had a meeting and they decided that they wanted to close Daytop California. And the reason they wanted to close Daytop California is because they felt that it was too difficult to manage the entity being 3,600 miles away. Um, it was costing them money. And now I'm making a weird face now, by the way, because I'm like, we're costing you money. Okay. And what did we want to do? So, you know, for years, you know, we've always talked lightly amongst ourselves here in California about, you know, separating and, and stay, you know, becoming our own entity separate from Daytop New York. Um, it was just always light talk. We never, you know, no one ever sat down and made plans. Um, but now we were emboldened because in getting that phone call from Joe saying that, hey, the decision was made by the board that closed Daytop, California, um, and the only option to us not closing was to basically buy buy them out. Um, the foundation owned the property, and if we wanted to stay in existence, we had to buy the property from them. So that started a 12-month, well, no, about a 16-month odyssey of trying to buy out Daytop New York from Daytop California so that Daytop California can continue um, and Daytop New York, which, which it's a funny thing. They wanted us to continue. They wanted us to be able to buy them out because they needed the money. You know, at that time, they were really bleeding a lot of money. The million, the million point one was gone, not coming back. Um, they weren't making pension payments, come to find out, um, which affected us because we were tied to their pension plan. And so now they're looking at, hey, if we can, if if we get Daytop California to buy out the property, that's another infusion of cash. Now. How, how much that's going to solve the, the root problem, we didn't know, we didn't care. All we cared about at that time was, wow, they're, they're trying to close us down. And so we kind of uh, put our heads together and decided that, you know what, we were not going to let that happen. Let's see if we can uh, somehow get a bank to loan us money um, and uh, buy them out. So the first thing we did is we got a lawyer. We got a lawyer. Um, and the lawyer started corresponding with uh, Steve Winston. Now, I just want to add, just perspective note, um, when we were doing the historical series, um, Daytop 1, 2, and 3, um, I did uh, contact Steve Winston and ask um, if he would come on and participate and wanted to get his perspective on you know, the, the, the latter years of Daytop and what was transpiring. Um, and he declined. 
to participate. Um, it would have been interesting to hear his take because um, he was he was there through the whole thing. As a matter of fact, he he played an integral part in making the transaction happen um, with the, the the separation. You know, as the general counsel of Daytop New York, he was going to be the lead person to you know get all the legal aspect of separating the two corporate entities um, apart from each other. So we at we're at we're still in like April just 2006. It sounds we like we find out that New York wants to close us, so we get out we start our getting on our horses on trying to find a way to buy them buy out. Buy the property. Buy the property, buy them out. Now, so we're doing our own thing on the side trying to figure out what we're doing and um in the meantime, you know, I'm corresponding with Joe want to know what's going on, you know, back there, because them coming to this decision means that there's some serious stuff going on. Right. You know, and then I hear that Charlie Devlin, my hands are off in quotations, retired. I'm like, what? So I asked Joe, I said, what's, what, what happened with Charlie? He said, well, there was a power struggle and... Charlie lost. He was he wouldn't really retire. He was forced out. Yeah. And uh, this is just my personal opinion. I would say the wrong person was forced out. Okay. Because uh, and then this happened in 2006. Because right after Charlie Devlin was forced out, the the precipitous fall began. Was expedited. Okay. Okay. So decisions that were made. Um, management of whatever scarce resources were left, um, communication with state folk, auditors, or you know whomever, regulators, etc. Um, it just was not going well. Okay, and think about this. You know, so many people spent many, many, many years working at Daytime New York. Right. You know, a lot of the employees were long-time employees. You know what I'm saying? There was a core of long-term people there. And these are people that were there because of the cause and because of the mission, not because it was a job. And that starts with Charlie Devlin. Okay. Okay. So the decline... There was just no coming back from the slow decline. Um, so you mix that with, so what happened in 2007, 2008, a severe recession, further government belt tightening at a time when Daytop New York really needs money. Right. Okay. But there's further belt tightening, and so there's less resources, which then requires more expert management of right. those resources. And I would be the first to tell you and raise my hand and say, it's my my guess through the evidence that that wasn't occurring. Hmm. How do I know that wasn't occurring? Because ultimately, in 2012, I believe it was, they filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy. That's right. I remember that Which as is well. the, you know, and again, I get a call from Joe. <laughs> Joe. You know, he's retired by now. He's retired yeah. now. You know yeah. what I mean? And 
Eastern calls and he says, Well, a top New York just filed for chapter thirteen. Yeah. And I wasn't shocked. I wasn't shocked. I didn't see how they were going to get out of this tailspin. And the reason why I didn't see a way out is because of the in my opinion, some of the people that were things being outside of your control. Yeah. So what's outside of your control is government cutbacks and and you know the recession, right? Private donations, you know, being squeezed and things of that nature. That's not within your control. Right. What's within your control is how you manage the resources you do get and how you manage the entity. Sure. Itself. Okay. Well, were they slow to slow to react, slow to respond, slow to make decisions? Yes. Were the decisions that were ultimately made not the right decisions, not the correct decisions, poor decisions? Yes. And I don't know what all the decisions were. All we're looking at is the end result, which is the Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Okay? You file Chapter 13. I'm saying Chapter 13. It might be Chapter 11. I don't know. But they file bankruptcy, and at some point, you get six months you got to put together a plan of reorganization, submit it to a judge who has to approve it. Now, during this time, okay, during all of this, while all this stuff is happening, what I'm hearing from my sources is that now the state entity that licenses and oversees the drug treatment programs in New York, OSAS, O-S-A-S, Office of Substance Abuse Services, I believe is what it stands for. Okay is on Daytop's ass. Okay. They're really concerned about the mismanagement. And so at some point, there was a directive that the management team, those who are in charge, those are who are pulling the strings, making the decisions, needs to change. Or we're going to change it for you. And they were supposed to, at some point, present a plan to the state of what the change was going to be. And if the change was not acceptable, the state was going to say, no, this is who we're putting in charge. Well, ultimately what happened was the state came in and put their put people in charge. Mm, okay. Now, what could be happening in an organization that a state agency, which was so close to you in terms of your success, behind you and your mission that reached a point where they were like, what are you guys doing? You, yeah. need, you need to turn this around here. We need, listen, you, we need some different people here making decisions. So let's submit to us some new people that are going to come in, some new qualified people that are going to come in and to try and write this ship. Yep. And whomever or whatever it is you submit Get summarily rejected, and they say, "Forget that. We're putting, we're appointing we're put a, in our own people, own people, and meaning they're not employed by the state, but they're just picking people who they know might have expertise, and putting them in. So you, it's almost like you have an alien entity coming in now, who knows nothing about the top, about their history, and blah 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 blah, coming in to now try and see if they can write this ship, right." How could something like that happen? 
How could something like that happen? Damn why there should be many people who are pissed off. Now, let's talk about what didn't happen, just for a little bit. And these are my own personal observations slash pet peeves. Okay. We out here in California, even when we were daytop California and now when we're our common ground, we have an emergency succession plan. Okay? You want to break that down for the listeners that are not as business savvy? If I get hit by a bus... Well, I'm sorry. In California, it's the train. Yeah, in New yeah. New York, it's the bus. The Caltrain. Right. If I get hit by a train, there's a plan in place for someone that's going to step in temporarily to be in charge until the board decides who's going to take my what place permanently. Sure. Okay. We also have a long-term succession plan, meaning who are we mentoring, bringing along, teaching the field, that are going to be the next leaders. It is my observation, backed up by some inside sources, that that did not and was not occurring in New, in York. New York. Evidence by, for at least 20 years, see a change in the executive council in terms of new blood hmm. that was mentored and brought up through dedicated, loyal people Added to the added to the council to bring new ideas, new management, you know, to to new culture, so okay. to speak. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Keep it fresh, keep it growing. You know, to, it should be an organism, not a, a static thing. It should be dy- right. to use the internet term. It should be dynamic, not static. Right. Okay. And so, no, it was the same people. Year in and year out. That were on the executive council. And I used to, and I'm going to throw his name out there, and he may not like it because I used to always tell him this, but I used to always ask because William Torres, one of my peers, was, you know, he rose to be a special assistant to one of the vice presidents. I said, I used to tell Joe, he would make a perfect uh, person to be on the executive council. Mm -hmm. He rose through the ranks, dedicated, loyal, new, day top, inside out. Yeah. Okay. Would have also added some diversity to the executive council. It was already a woman, but it was no one of color. He would have added some diversity in terms of person of color. Okay. Um, but put that to the side, just adding new blood never happened. Hmm. And what was, the, what was the succession plan if something happened to the Monsignor while he was in the prime of leadership? Not the latter years, but the, you know, during the prime of leadership. Right. Um, Maybe there was one. I don't know. But when I, Joe and I used to talk, it was, no, there is none. Huh. I said, well, what's going to happen if, let's say, if the Monsignor passed away in 98, when he was still in the prime of leadership? What was going to All hell is going to break loose was the answer. <laughs> I said, that can't be. How can that be? Right. There should be a plan. Of course, you yeah. Just, you just of course. Shake, you, he would just shake his head. Plan. Didn't make any sense. So those are some of my pet peeves just based on the knowledge and the sources that I had. And no, those things didn't uh, cause the failure, okay? But to me, 
people, new blood, new culture, um, you know, expanding the, the, the mind power of people who were there that maybe would have said, hey, you know what, we need to start going in this direction yeah. a little bit, or we need to start doing this differently, okay? So instead of just being in a vacuum of the same people, you would have a different voice that maybe kind of been like the canary in the mines. Okay. okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that didn't exist. So there was no potential for a warning voice that someone that might have had their, their ear closer to the ground. You know what I mean? We're set up out here. The person who's responsible for having their ear to the ground is, is, is me. Right. Okay? But the way they were set up, they were set up in a more, quote-unquote, poor for-profit type structure. Okay. Okay. So the executive council, I wouldn't say, were the ones who had their ear to the ground. And I don't, when I say ear to the ground, I mean the ground ground of what's changing here. I know a couple that did. I know Charlie did. Okay. But as a unit, okay, I don't think that that existed to the extent that it should have. And the way that you get that is through when you're bringing people up through the ranks and through the, you know, they're bringing with them what they're hearing, what they're experiencing, and then they can bring that to the group and say, hey, we might be able to do this. Let's, we need to turn left here instead of going, we're going down this road. We need to make a left turn because that's what the signs are outside. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm, I'm thinking. Okay. So, when you know when the state came in, they ultimately uh, said everyone had to go. One fell swoop. Now, how would you feel if you were a person in a position of understudy, let's say, mm-hmm. an assistant, um, you know, someone in in management, but not at the upper uh, management. upper management level, and to see outsiders come in to quote-unquote, either resurrect or correct the sinking ship, the listing ship, um, when who knows better than you, hey, this is what we need to do. Right. I can imagine what that would have felt like. Yeah, pretty bad. So I I had serious problem with that, that kind of approach. And with good reason. The writing is on the wall now. Um, I know I've rambled for 45 minutes, but... Good information. I still have a couple of questions, but we do, however, have a caller, um, an old Daytop graduate from 1980 who's calling from New York who did want to ask a question about what it is we're speaking about, something to do with how and I'm sure he could explain it better if we get him on here, but something to do with how could Daytop go from being number one, essentially, and so powerful in the field and what they did being, you know, the the pioneers, so to speak. And do you want to, I don't know which caller it is. Do you want to bring bring him on? Yeah, something? I believe he said his name was Art. Okay. So we can bring Art on here. Hello? Hey, Art. Welcome to the show. Hi, my name's Ari Weiss. I'm a 1980 Daytop graduate. I worked for the agency for many years full-time, and I worked as a consultant up until 2009 when they 
said they no longer need consultants. Uh, you know, my question is, how could we have gone from, like, the number one drug treatment program in the world to filing bankruptcy? You know, some of the things... Some of the things that I see, I'm, I work in a field. I've been working in the field since 1980. I worked in many different treatment programs. I think that, you know, Daytop was tremendous at running a TC, you know, probably the best, you know. Uh, and I think that they held on to that. And if you look at some of the other therapeutic communities in New York, most of them either merged or diversified. You know, they went in different directions, and I don't think Daytop, you know, did that. You know, they, they stayed with what they knew best was uh, running a TC. But, uh, you know, it, it hurts. You know, like Daytop saved my life and, and, and many of my friends' lives. And it's just, you know, mind-boggling how, you know, we went from number one to, uh, you know, bankruptcy, you know. I agree what you were saying about a sensation plan. Uh, I don't think there was one. Uh, you know, it's just very sad. You know, that's my opinion. I think that there was a lot of poor planning. You know, uh, there was, like, really no vision, no five-year plan. Uh, you know, they focused on running a TC really well. I mean, that, that's my opinion, and, you know, I also often speak to a lot of my friends that uh, went to Daytop and worked at Daytop. And, you know, we all come up with the same thing, you know. Hey, Artie, um, I, I, I agree with that, and I think that speaks to one of the things I was talking about, about that without infusion of new blood and new ideas and people who might see that, hey, we need to... Well, as you said, diversify a little bit um, because different things are coming down the pike. Right. Um, they're, you know, the powers that be are sitting in a room in a vacuum. Um, and well, I said at one point that, you know, most of these gentlemen and, and, and ladies that were there were all in the same age category. Right. And, and there, there was no younger folk mixed in, et cetera. That would have probably, you know, brought that new vision, new ideas, and diversification to the to the table. Well, I agree. So that didn't happen, and that's to me part of part of the reason for the end result. Yeah, and then you know another thing that upsets me is you know I, I know a lot of people that. Uh, you know, kind of like, for lack of a better term, got beat on their pension money. You know, yep. they uh, once they filed Chapter 11, uh, I think they paid off people at 8% of what they owed them. And a lot of people worked there, like you said earlier, many, many years. They dedicated their whole lives, and they had thousands and thousands of dollars in their, you know, retirement fund. And, you know, they were given checks for you know, a couple of hundred dollars, yep. a couple of thousand dollars. Yep. You know. And then, and then and I think what, what else bothered me was uh, they went out last year when they, I guess, they merged with Samaritan Village, and they donated. You know, they had the Strawberry Festival, 
which, to my knowledge, is one of their biggest fundraisers. And, you know, they had this big fundraiser, and, you know, my opinion is they should have, you know, tried to make good and pay some of the staff back some of the money that that they were owed. You know, I, I thought that was uh, despicable, that they had this big fundraiser, and they left, like, uh, for lack of a better term, a lot of staff members hanging. And so your your position, and and I don't think you'd find many who disagree, is that whatever they whatever they raised should have been used to 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 make those long term people who lost out, especially right. on the pensions, make them exactly. uh, as whole as they could have made them. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree. But once you go into once once they filed that bankruptcy, I I I, I knew what was coming. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of us did too. So, is this, is this, uh, it says your name is Art, but is this Ira? Ira Weiss, yeah. Okay, Ira, okay. Ira, thank you very much for calling and, and, and sharing your uh, your experience and your, your thoughts. With very interesting it. show. I had a hard time finding the number, so I was a little late, but uh, I'm glad I got on. Okay. Thank you. Keep listening. Okay, certainly. All right, bye bye. Um, he, brought, he brings up a great point because you know it's funny. I pointed out to uh, Elizabeth, my assistant, I, I got the envelope in the mail about the Strawberry Festival. Yeah, and I yeah. was kind of like taken aback because I was like, "Really? They're still they're still doing this during this quote unquote crisis period that they're right. doing the Strawberry Festival?" And I'm like, I was looking on the the uh, the letter to see the names. You know, like I want to know who were the officers, who's involved, like, right. who's involved. No names I recognize, and I was like, "Wow, they're still doing this." Is it, well, okay, I guess they're trying to, you know, still go and do whatever it is that they're doing. Um, but he he raised. I mean, that's a great point. You know, if you're going to fundraise, knowing that you're actually not going to continue to be in existence as the standalone entity, right? What are you doing with that fundraising money? What's your plans for it? That's a great question. That is a great question. So, you said you had some more questions for me? Yeah. I I know I I rambled. Basically, I mean, you obviously you gave a lot of information and answered the majority of my questions, but there's one question that I have to ask. If I'm a... If I'm a listener on the show right now and I'm gathering information and I'm listening to you and mm-hmm. and Ira Weiss and whomever else, the the question must be asked, who is to blame? Is there a head that this can fall on or should fall on? Um, or do we put this on the entire team? You ask a great question. And I'm not going to shy away from giving you the answer in proper context and respect. Okay. The blame lies at the top. Okay. Who's at the top? To you. A question to me. Who's at the top from Daytop, New York? Yeah, who's at the top? Uh... Boy, that's a great that's a great question. 
Uh, All right. After the Monsignor passed. uh, No, no, I'm talking back then, man. So the answer is the Monsignor. Okay. So I say that with great respect, dignity, and in context Mm -hmm. to the question. When you ask who's ultimately responsible, because it didn't start overnight. And again, there were conversations that I would have with my vice president, okay, about these type of things and about why there was, and even Ira mentioned it, why there was no five-year plan, why there was no succession plan in temporary and long-term, why there was no mentoring of new leaders for the executive council and things of that nature. And when you say why, 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 well, the only person that you could have posed that question to would be the person that's the president at the time, which was the Monsignor. Right. Um, would So absent that, it would then be fair to ask, well, the other members of the executive council who were underneath the president, senior vice presidents, vice presidents, et cetera, <clears throat> What were their roles, either directly or indirectly? Directly meaning through decision-making, indirectly meaning through not speaking up, you know what I'm saying, or, or not questioning decisions uh, that, that might, have, might uh, have appeared to be incorrect decisions right. or things of that nature. So you would then go down the line. So next in line would be Brian Madden. He's the senior executive vice president. You know, next in line you would go to, um, well, Charlie was gone by then, so the the chief financial officer, I don't remember his name. Um, But in my opinion, he was not making very good decisions in responding well to the the, the financial crisis. Sure. Okay. Um, And to some of us, it was amazing that, how dare how dare Charlie be squeezed out and this guy still be there? You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, what do you think was behind that? Behind what? Charlie being squeezed out. I, Why is his name being thrown out there? Well, anyone who throws his name out there in terms of a scapegoat is speaking from ignorance. Yeah. Okay. Um but your question is, why was he squeezed out? Yeah, why Why was he the one? Why was he the target? I don't know the intricate politics of why he was forced out. I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I'm not certain for sure, that's why I don't want to be rumorizing here, if the power struggle was between him and the senior executive vice president, Brian Madden. If that was the case, I would be surprised because these guys were together a long time as a as a you know an executive management as a team. unit yeah um but you also have Steve Winston who was a senior vice president the general counsel um you also had um there was a lady I don't her name escapes me at the moment um I want to say Liz Gardner but I don't think that's who it was it was another lady that came after her but um, but it was the same group for a long period of time, and why they would, you know, why Charlie would be forced out, I can only speculate. I mean, was he raising these type of questions? Was he, was he, 
I mean, if you just base it on the interview, some of the things he mentioned about, you know, was he was he seeing the you know what was coming down the pike, and they're like, hey, we need to look in a different direction. We need to seek other sources of funding. We need to do other things to diversify. Was he that voice, and that that wasn't being received well? Speaking to Ira's point, that hey, this is what we do. This is what we do well. We're sticking to that, even though the world around us was kind of changing. Right. Okay. Just like here, we still do the TC, but we modernize the TC. Right. We moved with the times, and we also incorporated other mental health and other things into the TC mm-hmm. and made it work and made it fit. So the TC still lives. It lives in Daytop, New Jersey. You know, but it's about modernizing it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. That so, makes a lot of sense. You have to adapt on some level. Yeah. Uh, times change, research, new things come right. out, and the type of client and the type of issues. and Right. You could still have your, you know, your. we talked about the basics can live course, forever. Yeah, the basics can live forever in the TC, but there, there are certain macro things to the TC that you may have to modernize and, and modify and, and, and what have you, which is what we did. Um, so did I answer what did I answer your first question? Yeah, absolutely. So the first question would be the Monsignor. Right. Right. Um and I know that might be touchy for some people, but that's the truth really. It's you know, you you, you go to who was the top person. Right. Okay. Now in 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 2006 2007 um 2008 keep in mind you know the monsignors in his late 70s early 80s um i think around that time if i'm not well he died at 90 so i'm not trying to do the quick math but you know he was getting up there um and he wasn't working as much in terms of his on site but he was still the president okay, okay. Um, and he, he, you know, the, the last time he visited us out here in, in Daytop, uh, California, um, was was 2005 or 2006, and he was still spry, sharp, you know, etc. So um, I don't think it was uh, any um, intellectual slippage at that time. Not to say that that didn't start to occur, right? Because I have it on good source that that did start to occur. Um, but at that mo- at that time in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, I don't believe that was the case. Um, okay. So I think we mentioned when we did the sh- our our three part series that this institution, and I made it a point in my show description, physical institution of daytop, which is different from the, what I would like to call, and and understand what I'm trying to say, the spiritual institution of Daytop, okay, to me are two different things. Okay. So the physical institution and the physical demise, the demise of the physical institution was due to the failure of of people, humans, that were... Uh, Entrusted with its its um, existence and certain external factors which people had no control over, but I think if they looked from upon 
and hide the big picture. They could say, if those people entrusted with the management of the physical institution did a better job, it could possibly be stated that it would still exist. And I would agree with that. If that was if that was stated, I would agree with that opinion. The spiritual institution of Daytop will never disappear. Even though we still have a physical institution in Daytop, New Jersey, we still have a physical institution in the name of our common ground, but our we are the the child of Daytop. So as long as our common ground exists, Daytop will always exist. Okay? Daytop is our parent, so to speak. Um, so even though the parent has passed on, we st- we still carry the torch as the child of, of Daytop. And by the way, I, the reason why we're not called Daytop anymore is because part of the agreement, the separation agreement, in terms of the intellectual property, we couldn't keep the name. That was the only thing we were not allowed to keep was the name. Everything else we were allowed to keep, but we couldn't keep the name. Okay. And so that's why we had to come up with a new name. For trivia, by the way, for those of you out there, <laughs> why we're called Our Common Ground <laughs> that's right. and no longer Daytop California. Um, and that we had we had a great attorney working on our behalf to, 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 to make this separation happen. Um, a, a great attorney, great law firm. Uh, behind him, laid back guy, Steve Winston, not laid back, so extreme opposite, Steve Winston, okay, okay. Um, and so one of the things I said to Joe was, first of all, he's the right, he's the right guy, my only concern is whether or not he, Steve Winston's ways are going to grate against him, mm, okay, because okay. Steve was gruff, very outspoken, you know, add add to that the New Yorkerism on top of it, on top of it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's a wicked combo. Could, could rub people the wrong way, turn people off, okay? Especially if you didn't know them, okay? And, but Greg handled it with, with no problem. The, the question is, I wonder if we would have pushed for keeping the name if we could have eventually won on that legal point. Yeah, okay. Um, but we didn't fight. We didn't push it, you know. That's you know he just said hey since there is no one from Daytop New York going to be in our leadership and sitting on our board we could not keep the name we just let that be. we said fine because we were at a point we just wanted this to be over and make the separation happen we we had secured after ten tries by the way we tried for sixteen months and we finally. We're able to get a loan, find, get a loan um, obtain a mortgage, and um, today we celebrate every year out here in, in in California, OCG, our common ground, August 24th as Independence Day. Yes, <laughs> yes. I... And people say, well, what do you, Independence Day, what are you celebrating? We say, well, this is the day we separated from Daytop New York. I've worked many in Independence Day for yes. us. And we've been told by many, um, many in the, no, back east to, you know, in Daytop, that uh, it was, we are, we were most fortunate 
in being able to separate. Right. Um, because we would have certainly, definitely gone down with the ship. Of course. So we uh, threw our lifeboat out and uh, got in our lifeboat. We were able to legally separate and um, escape that. Right. Doesn't mean that we were not pissed at, at losing that one point one million. Say, that one point one million dollars. They almost did take you, us down anyway. There were many times we were in that attorney's office, sitting on that co- in that conference room. Me, Ray, Joe Hennon, um, uh, and the attorney Steve on the other side on the speakerphone in New York, and you know working out the fine details and so on and so forth. And you know prior to that, me saying you know this ain't fair. This is not. This is not. There, when you add up all, the, when you do the numbers, add up the math, they owe us money. Right. They owe us money, and you know, eventually, you know, Joe said and Ray said to me, you know, what's more important? Are we going to continue to argue about, you know, go back and forth about who owes who what and what that amount is, or we can just make a clean break and just go, you know, and and what. Whatever it is that they owe, just leave it. Let's all right, do that. Let's leave it. Hmm. So we could still be arguing and fighting about it. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is true. So, but ultimately, the the best be, decision was to, made. Yeah, and to be fair for posterity's purpose and for the official record, um, this wouldn't have happened without Steve Winston. This would not have happened without Steve Winston. Okay. Okay. Meaning the general counsel for Daytop New York, right. Daytop Foundation. He he did a lot of work in making this happen, smoothing the process. You know, once we got the mortgage and and the sep, you know, the the details of the separating the, the corporate entities and all that stuff. Um, he did yeoman's work on his side okay. to make it possible. Because I mean, I don't know behind him, around him, what the thought process was about. You know what I'm saying? But I'm sure they were looking at that. Whatever we paid, I won't say it on the air. <laughs> yeah. They were looking at those, that, those dollars to try and help help them in whatever financial crunch they were. Right. They were in. So, do you want to take a break? I've been rambling for an hour and change now. It, you know what? It's great information. I mean, we can certainly take a break. I mean, I think I mean, break, I've never put this out there, so <laughs> yeah, I think a break may be in order, but um, we can come right back and you can keep on going, cap it off. We can get to yeah. recovery sports time after, but sure, good info. We will take a quick break. We do see we have some callers on hold. We hope you're enjoying the show. Appreciate the patience. We're going to take a quick break. Wrap up the topic on the other side. The Latino Commission Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services in South San Francisco was organized and incorporated in early 1991 and going on 22 years of providing services to our community. The Latino Commission, also known as TLC, would like to offer our services to those struggling with a substance use disorder. We have residential facilities for men, women, mothers and children, outpatient programs, transitional and SLE homes to assist and promote a successful recovery for individuals. We at the Latino Commission provide educational services on self-esteem, assertiveness, life management, coping skills, anger management, limits and boundaries, and other various subjects. The Latino Commission, restoring people holistically in an environment of love and understanding that represents our culture. 
improving quality of life. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us, and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. Back to Roach on Recovery, 646-564-9909 is the number. We're talking about the demise of Daytop, the true Hollywood story, from the perspective of Daytop, California, now our common ground. Uh, let's close on this. Um, I, I, Me personally, I know when, we, when you ask the question who's ultimately responsible, I said ultimately Monsignor as the president, and then next in line, Brian Madden. Um, you know, I would never have anything bad to say about Brian Madden because Brian Madden um, will always be an angel in the hearts of my wife and I because he helped us in, in what, how many years is it now? It's 25 years ago. Um, our lowest time, you know, right. when we experienced a tragedy and you know, he made a decision at his level that is quite unheard of. And, I think I remember and, you telling and, me the story yeah, personally. Yeah, in for-profit or non-profit corporate America. Um, so, um, and what's interesting and I think was cool was that in 2010 when we went back to Daytop, New Jersey for a, a celebration of Joe Hennon's retirement, um, my wife finally got an opportunity to meet. To meet. I kept always over the years, Speaking talking about, about Brian Madden, Brian Madden, but she said, who the hell is Brian Madden? And she, he, we just happened to be seated at his table. Wow. So I was able to finally say, that's, introduce them and say, that's Brian Madden. He's the one who made that decision. Um, and so, you know, for us, because of that, he'll always, you know, be an angel in our eyes. Of course. Um, does that uh, eliminate him from responsibility in his role? No. Um, and so... I think the people that have suffered because of what transpired um, do need to speak uh, and do what we've been, what we've taught, what, what we've been taught. If, if we were clients of Daytop at one time, and if we've been in positions of counseling others, which is to to talk about it. Yep. You know, um, don't hold it in. Don't hold resentment. Share. Talk. Explore. Um, event, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I would caution to stay away from personally attacking anyone without having any facts. And I think that occurred a little bit on social media, which I thought wasn't fair um, because it wasn't fact-based. Um, and, and 
um, but it's fair um, to look at leadership as a whole and say that they bear responsibility. Um, who bears how much and so on and so forth, nobody may ever know um, because I'm not sure if anyone is talking, you know, anyone's available to be interviewed. Right. Um, so you just look at the group. You know what I'm saying? But I don't think you can personally attack someone without knowing for you know, having evidence to say that particular person made this particular decision that had this particular result. No one's in the room. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I'll close there, sir. That sounds good. I thank you for the uh, the openness and the information. I, I got some great information out of it. I'm sure everybody... Who was listening? By the way, as well. this is the first time I've spoken on this subject in almost ten years. Yeah, yeah, you could feel yeah. it a little bit. For those of you yeah. not in the studio, it's a little hot in here. Yeah. Okay, there's uh, there's some pent up uh, years yeah. in in this information being withheld. So that one point one million, that one point <laughs> one million is steaming right now. But no, perfect, great information, great topic. Um, yeah, what else is there to say? We're going to take a quick music break and get to our recovery support time on the other side. Jesus, welcome. Uh, hi. 
Uh, I have a question for you. Uh, All right, we're going to put Jesus back. Jesus, we're going to put you back on hold. So I'm wondering if it's it's affecting um, all the external audio. Well, it didn't affect the phone call from uh, Ira. It didn't, but it also didn't affect the sound clips we were playing with Ira. Now that the sound clips are being affected, the phone call is being affected. Hmm. So it sounds like we dodged the bullet for the first hour and a half, and now the bullets are flying. Automatic uh, assault rifle type at this point. All right, why don't you um, see if you can take... I want to do a test. Okay. Doing all this live. We're, we're, this is we're all ad-lib, folks. live, man. That's uh, how we do it. Take uh, Jesus into screening, screening see if you have a good connection there. Get his question and then answer it on air. Uh, well, we're going to have to go to X-Files if, 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 if that's the case, if, if we're not going to get a... Uh, uh, yeah, but I'm thinking if if I can hear him and get his question, I can then recite it and then we can answer it on air. He yeah, can stay but I also want to see listen. if you can actually get him into the screening room. See if that okay. still works. We'll, yeah. But then yeah, if we if we get him in the screening room, get his question, we'll try and then get him back on the air. If that doesn't work, then we'll just we'll take his question. That's what we're gonna do. Hey, Seuss, I'm coming, brother. Give me one second. So in the meantime, I'm gonna uh, go to an X Files question. Uh, we had uh, Jordan from uh, Pacifica who was asking, uh, why do I always hurt the people I care about most when I'm in my active addiction? That's a very good question. Usually it's the people who are the people you love, the people who are close to you are the ones who not only you actively hurt, but the ones who experience the results of your addiction and resulting decision-making the most. Um more often than not, not 100 percent, but more often than not, people don't uh, try and take out the uh, the effects of their addiction on strangers, because there might be a bad result. So you're not going to steal, you know, you steal from family, you steal from friends, you know, because you know the chance of something bad happening to you as a result are lower than getting caught stealing from a stranger. There might be some bodily harm done. So. That's innate to the addict and the addictive lifestyle. That family is the one that feels the the negative impact of that in more ways than one. And that's just the way it is. Um, You hurt the people you care about the most because they're the ones who have experienced the result of your addiction the most. Uh, David from San Francisco is asking... uh, and this is a question we've dealt with before, is relapse a part of recovery? Uh, For some, it is. For some, it isn't. It's not written in stone as a rite of passage. It has to be. But for some people, that is a part of their recovery experience. And for some people, it is not a part of their recovery experience. Excuse me. How did that work out, sir? The test. We got him in the screening room crystal clear. Okay. So I got his question. I told him we would answer it on air. So we want to try and see if we can get him back online first, and then if not, then we'll we'll take his question and answer it. Sure, yeah. Let's give it a shot. Okay. Uh, all right. Hey, Suze, can you hear us okay? Sure. I, I do. No, that's... Uh, no, we're still, we're, we're still getting 
Hey, Seuss, I just took you off. Sorry. We're still getting the uh, the guitar from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fancied it more of the um, the voice box from when you've got throat, you know, you smoked cigarettes and you got throat oh, cancer. Oh, yeah, oh, you got to yeah. hold the box up there. But, yeah. All right, what's Jesus's question? So Jesus's question, it kind of taps into a question we've taken before. Um, he is a very hyper person, very energetic um I'm going to paraphrase here and say almost what he's describing to me is kind of like a ADHD, a hyperactive type of thing. Mm-hmm. And he noticed when he was in his addiction and he was using crystal meth or some form of speed that instead of creating that effect that it has for most, mm-hmm. it actually has the counter effect where it slows him down. Mm-hmm. Similar to the question we were asked about how come stimulants are prescribed for people with ADHD. Right. He wants to know, without obviously going back to using drugs and without using prescription drugs, is there any kind of method or any kind of practice he can employ to help kind of slow him down or calm him down? Um, he can look into getting con- consulting with a nutritionist okay, or a dietitian and see if he can use nutrition and diet to impact that try and help the brain chemistry out yes. a little bit. Yeah. Okay, perfect. The only thing I might throw out and uh this may be a little more difficult to put into practice, but maybe just being a little more mindful. If you're aware of the fact that you're being mm-hmm. hyper when you're being hyper, somebody points it out to you, one thing he said is maybe he talks quickly or he talks too much and that if people point that out to you, hey Sus taking a moment to think about it and slow your thoughts down a little bit, or at least if you've got a ton of thoughts happening, try and focus on the message that you're trying to deliver clearly or concisely rather than speaking it out as they come into your head. Okay. So that would say, Sue, so while you go back to the X-Files, I'll get on the horn here with uh, Jimmy. Also, also if Jesus is still listening, can you take him into screening and, well, We'll just let him hang up. It'll be interesting to know if the next caller, um, if, if we have a clean call come in, because um, he was holding a while. Yeah. Um, so see if a clean call, if we have, still have the same problem. But anyway, um, okay, so you do that, because I want to talk about, you mentioned the word mindful, being mindful. That's so right. While, you, while you're dealing with the next caller, I'm, I'm going to speak on mindful, because it brought up an issue that I want to speak about. Okay, sounds good. So mindfulness is a new thing in the field, uh, uh, a new, uh, what do you want to call it, evidence-based practice um, that's now making its way into uh, drug treatment, substance abuse treatment, Uh, mindfulness. Here's my problem, and I have nothing, absolutely nothing against mindfulness. The problem I have is there's an old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. Whenever I hear mindfulness, you know what I think of? To be aware is to be alive. Listening to Chris talk about uh, uh, an alternative for the previous caller about if you are aware or mindful about the issue that you're facing, you have a leg up, a head up on dealing with it versus someone who has no clue or no idea. 
You know, so your previous caller, the one you took the call from, um, Chris, what w- was astute enough, aware enough to be to know, hey, this difference that I experienced. And when you use that term mindful, you, you know, and mindfulness is the new thing that's you know coming into the treatment arena right um well not so new it's not, no so that's my point <laughs> that it's not new it's, it's not it's, new but we can title it now yeah, they they had they come up with different names for things that people have been doing for years and years and years yeah throw a label on it throw a label on it and all of a sudden it's new evidence-based practice mindfulness well yeah to be aware to be alive yeah so been saying and that for 40 some 40 something years 64 <laughs> Exactly. 63. 63. Even though I wasn't born yet. Um, Do we want to try Jimmy from San Jose? I've got his question, so there's no hurt in giving him a shot. Okay, let's see uh, if we can get Jimmy. Jimmy, are you there? Yes, sir. Yes, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> you sound you sound like a 1980s uh, techno, uh, techno uh, right. song. So we're going to take you off. Stay online, but we're just going to take you off air. Sounds like the uh, intro to uh, I Want My MTV, whoever that <laughs> whoever that group was back then. All right, day. what's Jimmy's question? So Jimmy actually had a very good question, uh, right to the point. How does PTSD affect drug addiction or substance abuse? Well, PTSD is which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. is something that someone suffers from as a result of something that's occurred. A trauma. Right. Um, drug addiction, in, in, as it relates to that, sometimes there it might bring up the chicken or the egg question. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if it was... If the trauma occurred and then drug addiction followed, right, you can explore whether or not there's a correlation. Of course. Okay. If there was usage before, then we had this traumatic incident occur, and then we had continued use. To me, it's more difficult to make a correlation unless there's a significant spike, a change in 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 drug of choice, and you know things of that nature then you can try and establish or explore if there's a correlation. Right. You could measure the, the frequency or the intensity of the right. abuse. If it significantly increased. Um, but there's no, there's, like, uh, there's no causal factor. It's not like PTSD causes substance abuse or substance abuse causes PTSD. I'm not sure if that was his question. Right, no, I think he just wants to know what is the correlation because there's it's talked about it's all the time, mental health and yeah, it, but it really it's specific to the circumstances and the individual. Right. It's hard to say generally, yeah, you know what you know what is the correlation because we don't know. It depends on your circumstance. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's it all depends on the individual. Um, yeah, there's empirical research that has shown that you're more likely to um, or there's a great percentage of folks who have suffered a significant trauma and now have the onset of PTSD who self-medicate, but that is not straight across the board. It's not to say that if you have experienced a trauma in your life and you now have PTSD, 
that it is a foregone conclusion that you will self-medicate or you will get high. That is just the path that some or many happen to take. Right. Um, I agree. We have a... Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's 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 absolutely unique to each person, so it's hard to generally generalize an answer yeah. on that. So. Such as this field in general. Yeah. It's very unique to each individual. So we... Without screening, we got someone who just called in. Now, Jimmy and Jesus were on hold for a long, long time. Right. We can just try and bring them on the air and see what happens. Um, okay. Let's, uh... Hi, welcome to Road Channel Recovery. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? Uh, my first name is Henry, Hi. my hometown. <laughs> uh, uh, All right, we took you. We took you off it. There we had our. We got our answer real quick, like there. And, and by the way, folks, as as we're doing this, we have this huge blue error message that no matter it, every time we click it off, it pops back up on our screen that says our engineers are working on the solution to this problem. It's uh, with the audio files. It will not go away, even though we keep Xing it out. It's been plaguing us throughout the show, and I, for one, have to admit, I've probably tried about 117 times to close it, and it will not go away. But so, it's, um, it's now, now's the only time we're experiencing its effects. So why don't you take... Yeah, the caller we just had that we attempted to get on air, I'm going to chat with you in the screening room, take your question in the screening room, and then bring it on air, and you'll be able to listen to our answer on air. So give me one moment. All right. In the meantime, uh, we're going to go back to our X-Files. Um, Daniel from Sacramento wants to know, what is the number one reason people relapse? Well, to the side, the I like to call the obvious number one reason and separate that from the conceptual number one reason. So let's say the obvious number one reason is they chose to. Okay, right, let's put that to the side for argument's sake. Now, what's the the issue, the number one issue, which is probably the more the better way to ask the question, what what's the number one issue that would would cause someone to relapse? Relationships, relationships, relationships. And one's inability to appropriately deal with relationships, 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 intimate and non-intimate. Inter, I-N-T-E-R, and intra, I-N-T-R-A. Makes no difference. Your inability to deal with them appropriately. We've gotten many calls for people who have spouses who are going down the wrong path. What should I do? How can I reach out to them? How can I save them? And things of that nature. And it ends up dragging the other person down. Relationships, relationships, relationships. The number one issue behind relapse may or may not have been what the topic of the show today was going to be before it was changed. You'll have to yeah, stay yeah. tuned to, to find stay out. Stay tuned to find out on that one. Um, okay, let's take the question from uh, Henry. So Henry from San Francisco has an interesting question. Um, what should one do if they are in treatment and? The treatment is doing more harm than good. Hmm. 
I would have had to have a full-fledged conversation with him to define harm and how he's perceiving that. What kind of treatment you're in, and and because then that will then help answer the your 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 obvious question of what define harm. So right. So So let's let's just say residential treatment. Uh, long term. Let's just say you're in a six month residential program year, maybe month three. So you're halfway through. Well, if you're halfway through and you you're determined in your own mind, let's say that it's harming you. Let's let's you and I put our heads together and try and determine. Okay, what can be harmful for someone at the midway point? And thinking in their minds, what could be harmful? Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather think. Well, you said thinking in their minds because the way I look at it is I'd rather try to identify what could be perceived as harmful to somebody going through treatment versus what is actually harmful. Correct. So I'm thinking at month three, maybe at this point your caseload counselor is digging a little deeper, having you maybe disclose things you may not have disclosed in the past or you're doing difficult and challenging clinical work. You're being pushed. You're being pushed, which we all know and the cliche saying is it. You know, it has to get worse before it gets better. So you, at that point, from my perspective as a resident, you kind of need to just trust in the environment, correct, that although it doesn't feel good now, that I'm talking about this stuff now, at some point in the future, a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now, days from now, as I check in with my peers, as bad as I feel now talking about this stuff that I've never really dealt with, it's going to get better, but in the moment it might feel like it's it's damaging me. I feel like relapsing more now, or I feel like hurting myself, or whatever the case may be. That's that's one angle I could see it from. Another angle is the person may think that the environment, the 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 family, is uh, not helping them. That's a okay. great that's a great point. Or, and or their fit in the family is not helping them. So. <clears throat> I would want to know something you're doing that the family is putting pressure on you and re- about. Um, do you feel isolated from the family? If so, why? Why Why do you feel isolated? What steps have you taken to not feel isolated? Have you put yourself out there to the family? Because if there's one thing that the TC is known for, okay, the TC is not made up of two people, Okay. The TC is usually made up of anywhere from 24 to 204, okay? And so there's always someone that you can establish a bond with in the TC. I have never, I have never in 25 years seen a client that could not find someone that they could establish a connection with. And if they haven't found someone, it's usually because they've made the choice to shut themselves off from making that attachment. Right, because they're, if, there's, if there's 60 people, if there's 60 people, a blanket statement, no one can ever make a blanket statement and say, they're all against me. No, that's, can't, that, can't be, that statement can't be made or, or evidenced by anything. Um, there might be a few people against you, but not all 60. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, so I don't know other than anything else. No, my my advice, um, for lack of a better term, to Henry would be to stick it through. Um, short of harm being something that is like illegal, like you're being abused in some manner, in right. which case 
um, you know, the natural response is you need to leave and report this to the authorities or call make, the authorities. Make someone make aware. Someone, aware. Be someone you can make aware inside right. that knows, hey, exactly. not right. So if that's the kind of harm we're talking about, then it's dealt with differently. If this is just a perceived harm because things are difficult and or challenging and or maybe not going the way you would like them to go, um, I would suggest sticking it out. I think it's also fair to say that every treatment environment is not for everybody. That's very true. Um, does it take three months to figure that out? Sometimes. Okay. But yep. more often than not, it doesn't take three months to figure that out. Usually it takes a couple of weeks, three weeks, a person knows, you know what, this is not the right environment for me. I may need this. I may need that. Okay. After three months, you would have known that this Agreed. is not the right environment. So I would I would probably lean towards more what you've said, uh, Mr. Producer, that it's they're probably going through a very rough patch mm-hmm. and you got this is when you, you know the hump, so to speak. Yep. One of the humps that you're gonna go through through treatment and you gotta fight through, you gotta push through. Exactly. And and it mimics real life. This is good practice for real life when you hit a rough patch, uh, uh, a patch where it's going to require you to to shore shore up some character weakness and build some character strength. You got to push through. So, absolutely, one hundred percent. Okay. Um, I'm going to try and drop the X Files clip. You know. I don't know when this problem is going to be fixed. Right, I want to see if we can even identify it in slow motion, you know? Go ahead. <laughs> that answers that question right there for you. I guess they mean all, I guess now they're serious. They mean all audio clips. Everything. Again, I hope again we, we, we knew at the beginning of the show that there was going to be a problem with audio files, but we actually, when we when we came on air, everything was working, so we thought that we wrote some recovery, we got away with it. That's right. It didn't include us. No, but, such luck. But they waited until, I think it was the one hour and 25 minute mark of the show. Just about. Just about. To, uh, Just about. All right. Um, we're going back to the X-Files. Do, do. There you go. You see, we can make it happen. James from San Mateo, how do emotions, thoughts, and actions combine to affect addiction and recovery? Okay. Well, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about emotions, thoughts, and actions. And it's interesting the way the order in which he has wrote it. It's kind of piggybacking off of a popular clinical practice, though, when running groups, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure he may have recently been exposed to, Mm -hmm. where you go around the circle and you have everybody identify, and it it goes in an order of what's called thought, feeling, urge, action. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to either start or close a group Mm -hmm. in a clinical, medical, whatever, this type of setting. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like just based on, like you said, it's, very particular the way he worded that, that he may have been exposed to that at mm-hmm. some point here. Um, so his question is, how do those three things combine to affect addiction and recovery? Well, we can answer that easily. Very. Okay. 
it, I, the reason, only reason I pointed out the or, the order, and you probably are right, is that it's. I just said, wow, it's you know, when we speak about, we end up with the uh, the action. We always talk about the things that come before that that right. lead to the action. Right. So he's got them laid out. You know, what you feel, what you think, and then what you do. Exactly. You know what I mean? So exactly. He's got them laid out in that order, the correct order. And then how do they combine to affect addiction and recovery? Well, uh, when you're not in control of uh, or not properly uh, processing your feelings, they affect exactly. what you think, how you think, and as a result affect how you behave. Right. And when you're doing the opposite of that, i.e., when you are in control of your feelings, I don't mean control meaning that you don't have any feelings, you don't express them, but you are aware of them, you're appropriately expressing them and dealing with them correctly, um, and as a result able to articulate them and express them intellectually, okay, that's mm-hmm. thoughts, right? Um, you're then in a position where you can then control how you behave. That's right. So that's that. What else do we have in the X Files? We had a lot building up, so it's a good opportunity to get through some of them. To get through some of them, that's right. Um, let's see here. We got Michael from San Francisco. Why does depression take hold of you after a relapse? Why does depression take hold of you after a relapse? So I like to call it the washing machine cycle. Okay. I like that. I can see where this is going. Yeah, I mean, so I've told many people over the years, uh, once you get a taste of treatment, your get high is ruined forever. That's it. Ever, 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 ever. You cannot get any higher unless you are comatose. (laughs) You will never enjoy your high again. And I, the residents used to laugh when I would bring this up in the seminar because I would say, "Picture this: so you, you, you know, you, for whatever reason, you choose not to, uh, you step off the recovery highway, you fall off the wagon, purposely, and uh, you go back to getting high, and you know you're you're smoking up a joint or what have you, and see, in before you were blissfully ignorant." You would just get high and just be getting high and thinking about whatever you thought about. You might have had some deep thoughts. You might have had some shallow thoughts. But I am almost certain that rarely, if ever, the thought of why am I doing this ever came into your thought process. Right. Well, once you get a taste of treatment... You're going to sit there. <laughs> the why mystery is now solved. So, and the why is going to be at the forefront of your thought process, which exactly is going to right. totally ruin the high. That is exactly right. Because not only are you going to ask the question why, you're probably going to be able to answer the question why and know why you're doing what you're doing and start to analyze yourself while you're high. And your high is ruined. You can't you can't get high blissfully anymore. <laughs> it's true. It's true, and I might even argue that if you look deeply enough, the depression may have started to sink in pre-relapse. Yes. So speaking specifically to his question, so you get high, 
you feel bad, you feel guilty. You feel good about it after, right? Okay, and as a result, you experience some depression, okay? And then unfortunately, the way to get out of it instinctively from, you know, historically, to get out of feeling that way, no one likes to feel bad, no one wants to feel down. So what do you do? You, quote, unquote, get high again. Now, the interesting thing is the word high a lot of times is a misnomer because not all drugs get you high. high. Some okay? get you low. Some get you low. Okay? So if you decide to drink, you're not getting high. You're getting low. Okay? Um, heroin is not a high. It gets you low. Okay? Uh, interesting thing, marijuana. It's a, it's a high, but it's more hallucinogenic than anything. Not that any people, you know, uh, talk about experiencing that part of it. Okay, but if you look it up, what is it characterized as or categorized as? It's a hallucinogenic. Okay? That's right. Um, cocaine, they'll get you high. Methamphetamine or amphetamine, they'll get you high. Yeah. Okay? Um, but that's the reason why, uh, Michael, you get that depression right after a relapse. You feel bad. You feel guilty. You're shamed. You're embarrassed. Um, that's where it comes from. That's aside from, as you said, Mr. Producer, if there's any pre-existing Sure, right, depression. no. Answering his question specifically, that right. would be what that's about, not looking any deeper than that. Right. All right, moving right along. How are we on time, sir? I mean, we don't, and we're not going to play our music at the end, so we're going to go right to the... We want to leave maybe about 30 seconds so we're not cut off from any last-minute thought. Right, but right, right. we got about four minutes. Okay, good. Um... Angelo, it's rearing its ugly head again. Angelo, how long should I be in recovery before taking on a relationship? Hey, uh, stay tuned. Yep. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Justin. We, we've never gotten a question. This is such an interesting question. Okay. I I so wish we could have gotten this one on the air, like uh, as an audio call. Okay. What kind of result? I, we think we did we speak about this amongst ourselves, or did we handle this on the air before about the results I should expect coming into a rehab center? That we did handle on the air actually, oh, okay. and All we right. had a good time with that okay, one. Okay, good. All right. He's like uh, shopping for a new Shop, car, or whatever. Oh, yeah, you know, he yeah. wants to he know wants, the miles per gallon. Yeah, he wants he he wants a <laughs> predetermined outcome. <laughs> exactly. All right, I didn't cross that one out. Uh, Terry from Vallejo, can you recover from drugs and alcohol without treatment? Did we do that one? I don't recall. No, I don't. Uh, we did something similar. I don't believe we did that same exact one. Okay. Um, to me, it has a lot to do with defining treatment, right? I think I remember talking about this. I think I remember saying. I mean, I, I've I've had. I think I remember hearing you yeah. say you you know that the answer is yes because you've experienced having I, I relationships know with folks who have yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, overcome that without. But see, so without any form of treatment, these people that I, you know, I or think, without inpatient. I, I think in answering it, what I the important part, in my opinion, that I added was, even though I know people who have successfully. Um, stopped using without any formal treatment, I think one of the things they miss out on 
by not having any formal treatment was the the advantage or the experience of exploring, you know, right. the cause, you know, their decision making and things of that nature in in the context of a treatment environment. That makes sense. So um Rick wants to know why is it important to believe in yourself when it feels unimportant? When it feels like I guess he means when he feels like giving up. So the way I interpreted that question was he's speaking about when it feels unimportant to believe in himself. Like when he, he's stating that he doesn't think it's important to believe in himself. And that's the way it comes across to me. Why is it important to believe in oneself when it feels unimportant? I, I interpret that as um, I don't think it's such a big deal. To have to believe in yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's to, to make this happen. So, oh, okay. Why, why is it important? So, make me believe, but it, why it's important? Okay. That's, yeah, did think that. That's just for us. We now now it's even affecting them. The them coming from yeah, our we, server we, at Blog Talk. We get messages. We get little alerts. audio audio alerts that you guys don't hear, and it's even it's the audio alert has the uh, yeah she lets the, us know the when techno we have, sound to it. We have ninety seconds left, and it's, we're not. If you don't, bottom line, if you don't believe in yourself, then you're not going to make it. That's it. It starts and ends with you. That's a great, and that's a great way to end it because we got about thirty seconds. Is there anything? You want to say before I sign us off? No, I'm glad we uh, got did the show on uh, about Daytop and the true Hollywood story from our perspective, Daytop, California, and uh, we'll be glad to. Um, hopefully, if anyone has any more questions or comments, they'll post it on our page. Yeah, I'm glad we did the show as well. I want to say a quick thank you again to all the callers, listeners, supporters, everybody who is behind us in this endeavor. We appreciate it. Uh, we would like to wish everybody a great end of the week and a happy weekend. Let's go, Warriors. We will talk to you all next Tuesday. And we do want to apologize for the audio problem, but it wasn't us. Thank you.